Welcome to Place Prints, a 10-part audio series by David Rudkin that gives a voice to the stories that haunt different locations across the British Isles. The 10th in the series is titled Poison Cross and is set on a long-distance lorry drive. This place print will begin after a brief introduction from the writer. Here, the dynamic of the place print manifests in a rather alarming manner. A sat-nav begins to pick up atrocious images from a conflict in a savage past. The core location here is the crossing of two major Roman roads. The Foss Way, linking Exeter and Lincoln, and Watling Street from St Albans to Caernarvon. The Romans called this crossroads Venonis, a possible allusion to some venomous vegetation then growing there. Today a junction lonely and bleak on the A5 in North Warwickshire, its name now is High Cross. The feel here is to my senses very unquiet. Somewhere around here in 61 AD, the Roman general Paulinus and his legionaries, fresh from suppressing a Druid revolt in Anglesey, have hurried southeastward to quell Boothica's rising. It will be the bloodiest slaughter ever on British soil. Local aerial photography shows traces still of the mounds of the dead. On its mount on my windscreen shelf, the little rectangular screen is black. Along the lower edge of its charcoal grey frame, the brand name in relief lowercase reads Nexus Viva. From the stalk of my rearview mirror hangs a fluffy toy, such as a small child might give his dad to take with him on a long journey. Behind my left-hand driving seat, taped to a panel above, are two photographs of a young dark-haired woman and of a little girl and a younger boy and two picture postcards one of a city's baroque domes and medieval fortress above a bend of a wide river on the other a cathedral-like tower overlooking a spacious public square checkered black and white from the back end stop of my cab curtain rail hangs in a freezer bag what looks like a handful of loose earth between my steering wheel and windscreen, a white name card faces outwards. On it, large black letters spell my driver's name, Roman. The cab is empty. My driver's door hangs open. Outside, all is silence. I'm a freight vehicle, a 28-foot Acropole M8F65. So I define myself, curtain-sided in Prussian blue, Along my length, in paler blue italic capitals, a Polish-looking company name, all C-Z-S-Z-W, and by way of address, simply the name Krakow. It's not long after red sunrise. 
I stand on hard surface of what seems the approach once to an agricultural works of some kind, now long disused and gated off. I'm badly parked, at an inconsiderate angle. I seem to have all but broken through the rusted iron bar gate. My driver is nowhere to be seen. It is not my malfunction that this vehicle is in the wrong place, or that vehicle operator have malfunctioned as they have. I process for them the data that I am sent from above. I convert these data to a continuous moving image on my screen for them to observe and comply. This image shows vehicle operator the road they are on. There has, however, on this journey been irregularity in the data that I have received. First non-standard sighting. Yesterday, 11.44am. On M25 motorway northbound approaches to Dartford Tunnel, River Thames ahead presents not a straight horizontal strip of grey, but as flow of red. For a few seconds only. Then, standard grey strip again. The irregularity was of very short duration, and it is to be hoped that vehicle operator did not observe it. They would assume I was in error. I am never in error. Oh, he saw it. It made him lose concentration. I felt it. Momentary lapse of vehicle control. I felt it. My driver was wondering, was it a trick of the light? Or of his eyesight? Was he more tired than he thought? He had driven me for two days, 1,400 kilometers of E-40 motorway, with only a brief overnight break at our usual truck stop on the approach to Dunkirk. Or had Nexus been updated without his knowing, and was speaking now in a new image coding? We had crossed many great rivers on this run from Krakow, the Vistula, the Oder, the Elbe, the Rhine. Nexus had shown them each in proper stiff band of grey. Why red now for this Thames ahead? And such a red. Not the in-your-face red of a traffic cone or prohibition sign, but a deep wine red, almost black, like blood. Oh, it worries him, all right. And it worries me. Or, oh, this is more likely. It would not surprise him if England had suddenly set up a tin-pot new satellite system of its own, and it was having what incompetent overpaid English management called teething troubles. Roman Leshinsky did not like England. Every time he surfaced from the Channel Tunnel at Folkestone, it hit him like a smell how miserable he was based in England, how he hated coming back. He ached for his own bed and his wife, his joy there in her body, so totally the opposite of his. And he missed his children, their laughter and their tears too, Monica and little Shepan, and his own widowed father, alone with his memories, light and dark, and his kitchen garden on the road southeastward out of Krakow towards the Tetra Mountains. It's from that garden that handful of soil had come hanging in that visa bag in my cab. That clutch of soil, his own Poland ever with him. No, he didn't like this turn his job had taken, driving the long grind to and fro between home and England, and mainly in England. Now, approaching the Dartford crossing, as we cleared the toll plaza and began our imperceptible descent between concrete walls, funneling us towards our lane's black tunnel mouth, and that familiar black depression began to thicken in his heart. 
Second non-standard sighting. I am being subjected to more irregularity. What's this? In a tunnel, there should be, at most, a temporary interruption of data reception, not... His Nexus screen blacked out. This must be the satellite. Bloody Blank black screen. Then onto it, off and on again, flickering glimpses, hazed and unfocused, not of map, but of river itself. Up closer now with dark shapes that look like mud banks, amid water a dirty, bloodish red. I cannot prevent vehicle operator seeing this. He will think it an error. It is not error. No error comes from above. These irregular data are interference. Within this tunnel, I am being subjected to interference from what must be a source within the tunnel itself. I cannot process this interference. These irregular data will show on my display as random pixels. Meaningless. My driver must not look at that screen, but he must. Those dark shapes are mud banks. And lying scattered about on them. No, not logs gone black in the water there. Human dead. It was jarring his concentration. We should stop. But in this tunnel, we could not stop. Trapped in this long leftward curve unending amid all this traffic hurtling onward alongside and behind us. We'd pull over if he could, but there was nowhere in this tunnel to pull over into. We'd lost concentration, all but run into that massive high back of the freezer container immediately before us. Whatever I'm picking up, I've lost it. As when an old TV aerial is being blown off signal by the wind, my image has broken up into watery noise. No, wait. It's image again. An image like charred classical ruins upside down, reflected in that bloodied water. Then it's noise. Where was that image coming from? Is there a DVD playing somewhere near us? In that car, passing? For all his years as a long-distance driver, Roman still hated the perilous helplessness of being in a tunnel. Now more than ever in his driving life, he wanted to be up out of this tunnel and into the light. He saw on the tunnel wall left of us a feeble first hint of daylight near. Then up ahead, a glimpse of blue day itself and overhead direction indicators there signposting re-entry into the world. On the little screen, he was almost too afraid to look at it. Normal. Standard flat blue ribbon of oncoming motorway M25. Nest of blue and green worms for tangle of junctions 31 and 30 ahead. I must reassure vehicle operator that function is resumed and that I continue to navigate vehicle operator to their destination as programmed. I speak. Normal function is resumed. Normal function is... Vehicle operator disables my voice mode. They do that sometimes. It silences me. In silence, we proceed along the M25 motorway anti-clockwise around northern London. My driver was only half conscious of either side of him the spreading rash of the outer city. He was seeing through the hazy lens of those nightmarish images he had glimpsed in the tunnel. He was less confident now that they could be technically explained. Was he hallucinating? When he was only four years old, 
He had once woken to see St. Francis Xavier standing at the foot of his bed. But he was ill then, a good little Catholic boy in delirium. And these today? Three hallucinations? And they seemed connected. Bloodied river, mud banks with dead, burnt buildings reflected. Roman was beginning to feel unsafe. And now comes his first driving error. He suddenly jolted back into focus. He'd been seeing the advanced direction sign without registering it. A12 Brentwood Chelmsford. Nexus had malfunctioned, failed to alert him of his approach to Junction 28, his exit. We were already on it. As well, we were in the slow lane. A sign, that too, that he'd been losing concentration. Without time to signal, he swung us clumsily off onto the slip road, almost as we passed it. All right, all right. He'd just done a shameful piece of driving with me, and he knew it. Bloody Polish driver, huh? Vehicle operator is in error. I have to speak. They have put me into silent mode, but they are in error. I override. You have left motorway by the wrong exit. Do not leave motorway. Join roundabout and take second exit to rejoin motorway M25 westbound. I repeat, rejoin- He ignored her. He knew which exit he wanted. He left the roundabout by the third exit as he intended. For A12, fast road northeastward, swiftly bypassing Chelmsford, then Colchester, then on to his home distribution depot on the outskirts of Ipswich. But the voice nagged on. You have missed your exit from the roundabout. Return at first opportunity and rejoin motorway M25 westbound. Vehicle operator is in error. I repeat. Re and that voice. She'd reminded Roman's old father of that English lady prime minister, always lecturing us Europeans like naughty children. Maggie, he'd called her. And now suddenly on her screen there flashed a new visual message. On and off. On and off. Advance information. Advance information. Advance information. And now that voice again. Incident on junction 22 slip road to M1 motorway northbound. Access blocked. For M1 motorway northbound, proceed via junction 22A for St. Albans and trunk road A5. I repeat, for M1 motorway northbound. What was the matter with her? M1 northbound. Junction 22, six junctions out of his way to the west. On his approach to his proper junction, 28 for A12 via Colchester, she fails to alert him. Now all she can do is bleat on about St. Albans. He switched Nexus off altogether. He was in his home straight now. He didn't need navigation. Certainly not with Nexus playing tricks like these. And yet... And yet... On his homeward, A12 now. Nine kilometers short of Colchester. I self-reactivate. Didn't know I could do that. On my screen, a large red exclamation mark appears. A warning message. Roadworks flashes on and off. Roadworks. 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 And beside my standard green ribbon of Trunk Road A12, a yellow alternative road appears. With a four-digit B number. We'd never known Nexus do that before. But this was more like what he should be doing. My driver complied. At the next roundabout, he signaled, prepared, and pulled me off correctly, 
and took me onto the alternative yellow road that Nexus offered him. It was good to feel he could trust Nexus again. It must have saved us a deal of congestion and delay. We were back to normal. Soon he was not so sure. I go blank. Blank. Well off his intended route by now, my driver needed guiding by something. He switched voice mode on again. Maggie was silent. He tried again. Silent. As though she was in a huff, teaching him a lesson. Now I'm phasing in and out of watery noise again. But we were in no tunnel here to block a satellite signal. We were on a long, straight, open road running just now between fields and trees. And my noise is shifting in and out of focus. Not as Mac now, but as road itself. And not the road he can see through his windscreen. Not the road he's driving. I'm showing an image traveling forward, much more slowly, on a narrower road, made of what seem uneven gray slabs. Then I blank again. What was that? Again, Roman had hardly seen it, and it was gone. There has been more interference, preceded by inaccurate data from an irregular source. There are no roadworks. I repeat, there... Why cannot I make myself heard? All I am is noise again. Either side of our long straight B road, suburban development was closing in. Our congestion-free alternative route was obviously leading into Colchester city center, where with a 4x2 wheeler M8F 65 freight container like me, he very much wanted not to go. Now, if ever, had he need of a screen display to guide him. But all I am is noise. My driver sensed that city center somewhere to our left ahead. Driving blind, he tried to route me rightward enough to improvise a way around. But, trapped with me into a filter left lane, he found himself locked into a city center one-way system that twice had me thunder, squeal, hiss up the same narrow hill street sown with bus stops and raised pedestrian crossings, twice rightward down the same main commercial street pinched with parking bays and clotted with pedestrians, twice passing on his left the same period-looking George Hotel, then the same paved alley leading off half-left to a glimpse of massive redstone castle on a mound, then twice rightward again down the same narrow street past the same bus station. He could not free us, and now Nexus... My noise is firming into something. Third time round now, grinding a third time up the same narrow hill street, negotiating its half-pulled-in buses, its jarring humps of sleeping policemen. On his screen, he was sure he... Data are coming that I do not recognize. Irregular data are converting to icons of their own. They are appearing on my visual display. I... He sees on my screen a glimpse. Noisy still of a towering statue of a woman crowned with stone laurels, stone sword raised, tottering towards us, about to fall on him in his cab. Flinching from her, he jammed down on his brake pedal. We'd almost run someone down, coming out from behind another HGV unloading. Barely conscious what he was doing, he followed blindly right again down the main street past the George Hotel a third time now. But he was driving with a nervous eye on that screen. I am trying to block irregular data. I cannot permit these to. They are very powerful. 
They... What am I receiving? What am I showing him? Blurred but horrible. Brutalities. Silent but as though in his head he can hear them. Roarings and screamings. It's as though we're nosing our way forward through smoke and flame from burning houses amid rampaging ancient savages with long wild hair, white faces daubed with dark patches. One group of them are beating and goading an old bearded man, naked and staggering, his arms lashed out before him along the wooden forks of a yoke about his neck. It reminds Roman of a wartime photo he's seen of a rabbi hauling an ox cart in the streets of Nazi Krakow. Now come two other savages, holding high a naked woman slung from a pole. No, not slung from the pole. Roman can't believe the abomination he thinks he sees. The pole's pointed tip is poking out between her shoulder blades. It's been thrust in between her thighs and up through her body. Then he was seeing, close before us, a light flash red, modern icon of a pedestrian, real but like in some unreal other world here all about us. It must have been the automatic pilot in him who emergency braked and stopped me to let a party of schoolchildren cross, armed with clipboards. The irregular data have ceased now. They continue. Half seeing, Roman watched the school party pass on half left from us along the paved alley towards the castle on its mound, but... On my screen I'm showing at the same angle and distance not that castle but what looks like a classical acropolis in flames. And from it, people fleeing toward him, women, children, old men in gowns and togas like extras in a gladiator movie. Their mouths agape in silent screams. And he can feel against his vehicle the bumping and buffeting. I... I... He jolted awake to pounding on my doors and angry faces out there below my driver window. Guilty as though caught watching a porn DVD, he switched Nexus off. I tried to get out your bloody town, he shouted in English, and the faces retreated as he pulled me angrily, noisily away. Rightward, a third time down the next narrow street, he pulled me aside onto the entrance to the bus station. Uneasily, but he must, he switched Nexus on again. For a moment he daren't look. The image was normal. He voided the program he had originally put in for this journey and which had so malfunctioned, and reset it. Postcode of his home depot on the Ipswich Bypass. Not that he needed to. Once he's back out from here onto the A12, he could drive there in his sleep. He did it to make the device his own again. Normal service is in operation. I try to assure vehicle operator of this, but I cannot speak. Why can I not override? In enforced silence, I navigate him through the northern suburbs of this town back onto the A12. He has now programmed into me. But this was not the... And now it crashes in on him like a falling wall, the imbecile mistake that he has made. All that way back on the M25 at Junction 28. Stupid Maggie, he had thought. You have left motorway by the wrong exit. Rejoin motorway. Junction 28, he had asked her for and not a word from her as he was approaching it. She had been right. Junction 28 had not been his home exit. Not this time. This time, there is an intervening destination he had forgotten. Before returning to base, he has a new delivery to make. 
It's only the second time he's delivered there. To an Eastern European supermarket depot on a distribution park just off the M1 up north toward the Midlands. A bulk consignment of multi-tint sports glasses. Cheap and nasty. He knew the label, sourced from child labor deep in Central Asia. There, up north, was the destination he had originally programmed in. There was where Maggie had been trying to guide him via the M1. He had been on automatic pilot when he swung us off seven junctions early at the exit he had till now habitually taken. Not only was it lousy driving he'd done back there, it was sheer bloody wrong. What was happening to him? He was the one malfunctioning, not the hectoring Maggie. She'd been functioning perfectly. With his programmed access to the M1 now blocked back there, of course he would need to use an alternative access, hence Junction 22A and her precious St. Albans. I am silent. One thing was sure. He was not turning me round and going back. All that way. And he had a temperamental aversion to that, acknowledging that he'd been wrong. And he'd made similar mistakes before. Once, before we had Maggie or anything like her, returning from a Warsaw run, he'd automatically taken a homeward exit for Krakow, forgetting he still had a drop to do way back over to the west. Rather than turn around, he'd improvised his way across country and was rewarded, he thought of it as being rewarded, with a vision of a double rainbow over a mountain monastery to the north of his road. In that monastery, his mother later told him, was a miracle-working icon of the Virgin. The rainbow was, like itself, a miracle, and justified his resistance to the idea of turning back. True to his name, he was a romantic. His mother, of Catholic peasant stock, from Galicia, and who insisted she was not a Slav, but a Celt, and told him such a vision, and his boyhood one of St. Francis Xavier, were signs that he was meant for a higher calling. And this time, straying off his route, he's seen his visions too. As then, so now, there must be a way across country. When he pulls in to refuel me, he reprograms Nexus yet again. He enters, as originally, the postcode of the Avon Magnus distribution park. Sorry, Maggie. Yes. Not far ahead of where he is now, if he takes the A14 cross-country freight road, not as usual to his depot, but today straight on past it, inland-bound, that will bring us almost as directly there. I still cannot engage voice mode. Also, there is an obstacle ahead. An obstacle unidentified for which I have no icon, so cannot make appear on my display. It feels strange to him, driving on past his depot. Almost as if he's dead and has come back, invisible to those living on without him. Perhaps he is dead. Not real anymore. Has he died and not known it? When? Where? Perhaps that's what my washes of noise were, and nightmare images of death. My language for his crossing over from his world into... into what? 
I can't say. I'm just transmitting onto him the signals I receive. Like someone on a treadmill, and as blank and grim, he ground a freight-heavy, narrow, congested A-14 amid its thunder and racket inland-bound toward the M-1 in Warwickshire. Vehicle operator is functioning perfectly now. Roundabout, flyover, underpass, feature by feature, I reveal his oncoming road to him, and he complies. But there is still that unidentifiable obstacle ahead. Length by length, Maggie leads him onward. Towards what? I'm seeing nothing irregular. And yet... Roman was feeling almost disappointed now. He was beginning to wonder even, did those images really happen? Visual route confirmation. A14 westbound to junction 19M1, motorway northbound. At M1 junction 20, exit west onto Trunk Road, A4303 for destination. Journey time remaining. Journey time remain... Journey time... Why cannot tell... Why can I not tell the journey time? No matter. It's a straight run. Simple. So simple that he remembered doing none of it. We are coming quite near now to where you first found us, and some way along the last leg of Trunk Road to the Avon Magnus Distribution Park. Or is it? He awakened to that sense of disorientation every long-distance driver knows. Have I actually done that short stretch of M1? He had in fact no memory even of leaving the A14. What road is this I'm driving? In a stab of unwelcome confusion, he glanced at his Nexus screen. I... I... Even as he looked, her screen display was fading. Roman felt a sudden sharp knocking in his heart. He became aware now, too. Outside there, the light itself seems to be fading. Surely he should have a good three hours of daylight yet. He glances again at the fading screen. Time display. Vanished. I... Also, this road was quieter than surely it should be. Nothing had passed us. Rear view and wing mirrors, all and each, showed road behind us empty. Back of us there, had some traffic incident closed the road. But opposite also, on the oncoming carriageway, almost nothing. Not even side lights on, one then another, then a third, coming onward, and slowly it seemed soundless, dark in the thickening dusk, then nothing. Had this road been closed in both directions, with him on it alone? He switched on my side lights, then my headlights, then to high beam. It really was dark. Had there been a volcanic eruption somewhere, that one in Iceland again? Were we under a cloud of ash? Or, God forbid, a nuclear incident? He reached to switch my radio on. Nothing. Dead. In the short beam of his dipped headlamps, the high beam bulbs seem both to have gone. The oncoming carriageway is now not visible at all. The entire road seems now to be only his one lane's width and his Acropol M8F65 taking up all of it. And its surface is rough, furrowed and ruptured. This can't be the A road to Avon Magnus. Somehow he must have strayed onto a by-road. Track, even. 
And as he looks from this row to his Nexus screen... Aye. It goes black. Futile, but he tried the effect of switching it back on. In white lettering, the Polish greeting appeared. Do widzenia. Goodbye. This time it won't switch back on at all. And now he felt the power of my engine begin to fail. A careful touch on my accelerator, no difference. My headlamps, dipped already. Are fading too. In their guttering beam he glimpses the surface he's on. Now a narrow causeway of huge, locked grey slabs. And along either side a shoulder of what looks like cobbles and coarse chippings. He's seen something like that before. On his Nexus screen, going into... Where was it? A lifetime ago? Now he's on just such a road itself. How has he strayed onto this? He knew the driver's tales of being led astray by GSN, a shortest route, out straight across country along a farm track and into a farmyard, or into a river, or over a cliff. I wasn't doing that. I'm not that brain-rotting map of Maggie's leading him on like a fish on a line, sapping any sense of direction he may still have, blinding him to where he is. I understand what I'm doing now. I'm showing him where he is, where... Ever this road might be taking him. My lights were going. I was about to die. He knew it. Once he stopped, I'd never start again. He must find somewhere to pull us over safely and stop me under control and deal there with this problem best he could, nosing ever more slowly forward. I'm picking up faint signals from a scattering of small dark buildings either side. But Roman is not seeing them. Following in the last of my light, this grey slab track of a road that seemed to lead on endless into the dark. I receive a dim signal of it crossed by another similar road. Roman had lost now all sense of distance or time. Ahead of us, beyond that left shoulder of cobbles and chippings, I'm sensing a patch of bald ground. Pale, whether stone or earth or grass he could not see. For my lights were flickering their last now. And if that bare ground proved too soft for my weight, too bad. I lurch, choke, cough my way across the crunching shoulder onto it. And before he can try to maneuver me into safe position here, up against a low bank of some dark vegetation, at an untidy angle, I quietly stop. Fall silent, dark and still. Here, Roman Leschinsky grimly thinks, almost aloud, my road from Krakow ends. He felt, as so many times before, that sickness deep in the stomach. This miracle of combustion, ergonomic and design that I am, that have purred and sung across all Europe without his needing to give me a second thought, suddenly a dead heap of junk. He must initiate emergency procedure. First, he must put up my red warning triangle behind me, then take out his mobile and start his sequence of calls. No, 
He decided to make the calls first to get that side of things going. There seemed to be no traffic hereabouts. The warning triangle could wait. His mobile too was dead. Battery or SIM card down, whatever reason. Only its home screen on and instantly off again. Goodbye. He tried. Not so easy in this dark. Taking the battery out. Rubbing it on his sleeve. Clipping it in again. This time, nothing at all. He must physically go on foot and find help. Beyond his cab window, all outside there about us was heavy darkness and silence. After the sound of my engine all day, it weighed almost physically in, the silence. As he stirred himself, unearthed my red triangle from beneath the passenger seat and opened his cab door to climb out, he was wondering in which direction best to set off. He had surely not been on this strange road long. He could not be all that far from Avon Magnus. This dark out here, this darkness so thick, almost he saw it physically flow forward to meet him, part about him, enfold him. As he stepped cautiously down from his cab, one step, two, ground. He feels the need to lean his hand upon the curtain side of his vehicle, to guide him all the way, strap by strap, along to the rear, to keep his hand braced there to support him while he sets the red triangle down. He can't even see the ground at his feet. He's never known the night so dark. And the sky, clear and astonishing with stars, sharper, larger seeming, brighter and more of them than ever he remembers seeing before. And the silence is like none that he's heard. Yes, heard. No sound of anything from anywhere. No distant vehicle or industry. Silence. Nothing living but himself. And about him, these banks of low, dark vegetation. Curtain strap by curtain strap, twelve of them. He feels his way back along the dark side of his vehicle. And it hit him suddenly how much a part of him I am. His M8F65. As he drives me to my last centimetre, my length behind him, somehow present in the back of his head. And now, so still I am, dark in this darkness, silent and dead. And out from my shelter, how naked he will feel, alone and adrift on foot, in an unliked strange country where he will know almost nothing of the language. Already he was raking together his few English words, shaping the first clumsy phrases. Good evening. Can you help me, please? Knowing only that people will come back at him with a flood of language he will not understand. But in this darkness, this silence, is there anybody living out there even to ask? No light anywhere. Nothing. He mounted to the second step up to reach into his cab for his mobile to take with him. It might revive. He could come in to signal as he moved. And only now did it occur to him 
as he had set the triangle, looking about him for some clue by which to orient himself. He has seen no moon. Last night, he had seen her over Western Europe, rounding out leftward from her half. Tonight, she will be almost full. Yet here, no trace of her, no cloud, those stars so clear. She'd surely be risen by now, nowhere near yet set. Bothered, and trying not to be, as he reached further in to ease his keys out from the ignition lock, he heard, No, feels, a tremor in the earth, as though of something elemental pounding toward him through the dark, and from the direction he senses he himself has come. His blood chills in him as he sees, darker than even the utter darkness about him, the low banks of vegetation begin to shiver and lift huge, troubled leaves. Smitten by a crazy dread and those massive growths are about to rise and move and close in on him. He pulled up and into my cab, the only protection he knew, and quietly as he could, but sharply as he dare, tugged the door shut, and on some childish impulse hid himself. If those monstrous leaves don't see or hear him, they'll not know he's here, he'll be safe. And this elemental mass approaching, coming, whatever it is, if he makes eye contact with any eye that it may have, it will... he didn't think what. Hearing himself quiver in dread, he drew his two halves of thick, stiff ochre curtain around within the windows of the cab, like a boy in a play den. He felt a sort of safety now. He wrenched off his jacket, clambered onto his bunk behind the seats, pulled the jacket over his face and buried his hands within it too, to leave exposed no surface of flesh, and curled up on the bunk, his back toward the world but his heart was knocking loud and sharp. How can those hideous leaves out there not hear that? But louder than even his heart, the tremor is coming into focus now. A tramping of feet, a thudding of hooves, a rolling and creaking of wheels, like chariots of the apocalypse. Then all was silent suddenly, still. He braced himself for their assault, nothing. He dare not move. Gradually he becomes aware. Was someone, some thing in here with him and had turned my radio on? He dare move, but he had to uncover his head and see, cab, dark, empty. Only him. Radio panel. Black. Dead. Sounds coming from my screen. I'm showing noise again. Different, though. As Roman lifted his head, shifted a little to see better. It's as though by his own movement he's conducting some signal. Through the noise on my screen, he glimpses. Now not. Now again. A faint brownish granular image of what seems a woman from some ancient time. Whatever she's standing on, it gives her height. 
there's daylight sky behind her. What she's wearing looks like armor, hides and wood. Her hair flows free, long and wild. She's like some legendary queen of the Huns. As Roman shifted again and reached to turn up the sound to hear her. It's as though in a film I've suddenly cut outside into the scene itself. She's here, life-size before him in the open, beneath the sky. Her flowing hair the red of flame. She stands high on the chariot. Before her, two younger women. He senses all about him a restless, mighty multitude. He sees none of them. He sees not even himself. Only his seeing is here and his hearing. Those heathenish words of hers seem now to come sounding from within his own head. In das he must have shifted again. The vision has vanished. A trace of her last words echoing in his head. And on his voice too, gasped aloud in the darkness. He's shaping them as his own. He hears what they mean. Free. Or die. Now came the assault he had known must come. The buffeting, the thud and shock, the rocking and swaying. It was as though he and I were in the path of a phantom horde in tumultuous charge. He covered himself over, curled up, and made himself physically small as he could. I'm the real one, he tries to say to himself. Not these. Whatever these are, these don't know I'm here. They don't even know M8F65 is here. They're passing through us. We're not here to these. It has to end. Had he slept or not? He couldn't have. Yet he must. He stayed covered and curled without moving. He ventured to inch his jacket aside. Even with cab curtains drawn, he could see it was daylight. A fiery-looking daylight. He ventured to part the curtains a little, the one back from the other, then peer out between. A blood-red sun was rising, painful to his eye. At least from that he could take a bearing. Along a low ridge before it, in near distance, a road passing there. Cautiously, then with more confidence, he drew the curtains fully aside. I had come to rest at an angle to, had actually nosed into, a double iron bar gate, with rusting chain and padlock. Beyond it a skeleton of Dutch barn, and left of that a long red brick building, derelict, its windows filmed over, a blind look. Closer, either side of us, dusty blackberry bush, hawthorn, white dead nettle, unlovely but not those nightmare leaves he had thought he was seeing the night before. Did he dream those? Also normal now, 
Surely, surely, the engine will start. It did not. At least his mobile. It did not. He'd not dreamt that. He must do now, as last night he was going to do, set out physically on foot and find help. Carefully, cautious still for some reason not to make too sharp a sound, he eased his driver door open, looked about him, ready to step out and down. He could now see the road there passing him, a dual carriageway, dark-surfaced and white-lined, its central reservation broken here by a white-lined chicane to let traffic cross. There must be another road coming to a junction with it here, passing close behind these bushes and trees. Yonder, opposite the crossing, facing him, a period-looking house. It had the look of a frontage only, as though behind that pale façade there would be no house. But there is where he would go and try first. As he let go of the grab handle and dropped backward to the ground, as I see around me the leaves I saw last night. Black then in the dark, now clear and loathsome in the light of day. Banks of them, giant, the cold, dead, dark, green, heavy, wrinkled, have weighed down their thick, knotted stalks the color of vomit, and lie coating the ground like monstrous wings. The edge of one of them snags at my wrist as I turn. It stings, it stings. I feel any moment they will all raise themselves and lift and fly upon me. He turns to lead back up into the safety of his cab. It is not here. My Acropole 65 is nowhere. No derelict shed. No padlocked gate. No dual carriageway. Instead, Along that ridge before the rising sun, that narrow road of slabs, and from flat green country below, another road like it, rising to cross it and drop over toward the northeast. In the sky above are black crows, wheeling, swooping. I can't hear them. There's some hissing in my head. The crows look silent as they circle and plunge. No. There's his M8F-65. It is. It is. And yonder the dual carriageway, and across it facing the junction two direction signs. A5, northward, Inkley. Southward, Milton Keynes. Roman Leshinsky had not thought he could ever look on those dismal English place names with such joy and southward down that A5 somewhere, not more than a mile or two, surely, there is where he needs to be, Avon Magnus Distribution Park. There is where he must make for. But first, to that house and a telephone. Something moves behind me. I sense it. A wooden cart there. Laden with slaughtered beasts, carts very old-fashioned, like from a museum, but dirty with use and running with fresh blood. Two people come dragging another carcass to heave upon it. 
They're in strange wild clothes with dark, daubed faces, matted long hair. They look... stricken. The carcass slithers to the ground. They have to heave it up again. It's human. On the cart, those aren't animals. The cart's piled high with horribly bloodied human dead. Red behind me, the emergency triangle stands. Why does the sight of it so jolt him? Because he'd set it there last night. It's an element from last night still here. It means that last night also is still here. But then he sees, the other side of me, something very much of this silent early morning, where a narrow country lane comes widening toward him. Three other HGVs parked up, all with cab curtains drawn. Are those sleeping drivers' stories the same as his? There's where he'll go first. The ground is black with crows. All about me the land is heaving with a black of crows. I can't hear them. I can't see what they're feasting on. But I know. As they jostle and squabble and lift and wheel away and back and land again, I glimpse... I glimpse flesh and blood there on the ground. I know what that flesh is. What blood? He was going to ask someone for something. Who? Where were they? He was going to go over there to... What was it there? Something's disturbed the crows. Flock by flock of them, they lift from their feasting, wheel and clash, blackening the sky. The country all about me is strewn with those wild-looking dead. Like a harvest scythed. Harvest, yes. Long-haired soldiers in poor armor of skins and leather. And women scythed too, children, old people, horses even. All bloodily dead. Amid them come other soldiers marching in breeches and skirts. Gauntlets and... Those helmets look Roman. Who are they, those soldiers? Hacking. Spearing everything lying on the ground. Even the dead they're killing again. Amid them, the Roman soldiers hacking, spearing... He is not in this world. He is not. He must keep moving. Away from it. Southward. Away from this. Southward for... What was the name of the place? Avon. Avon. Southward. Southward towards that sun. It's higher now. Beneath it, all strange little hills. People building them. Barbarians dragging their burden carts to those hills and adding to them. The hills are mounds of dead. There, that one. I see it grow upward and outward with yet more dead. This is not happening. Not now, not here. He is not here. He is, his name is... His name... <gasps> this mound before me. I look up and it is here. All fresh dead. No two of them dead in the same way. 
headless, limbless, slashed, sliced, slit, stoven. A skull split open, grey brain still sliding from it like from a broken cup. And this one, his eyes dashed out and hanging down his face. No. No. Toward that sun. High now in the sky. South. For. For. River here. Narrow, young. Can't cross, though. Deep. The water's red. Dark. Dirty red. On bank over there. Old woman on her knees. Clutching at her hair. Tearing it out. Throwing back her head. Mouth open wide in it. lying all around. Legionaries marching amid them, spearing everyone, human and animal, the same, fires everywhere. To the horizon. Heathenish words. They sound stretched. I can't hear one from the next. Except the last. What does it mean? Avona. The old woman bows her head again, rocks to and fro before the river. She's reaching, weeping toward the blood-red river. It is blood. Perhaps that word means blood. She's looking at me. The face is carved with furrows, work and age. She's flowing with tears, ugly tears. Now more strange words. Names those must be, of those she has lost. At each name, she shakes her old head. One after another they come, the names of her dead, no end to them. She's raising her hands again to tear at her hair. Behind her, how did he come there? A Roman soldier is raising his sword. Beneath his helmet, his face is dark. Syrian, perhaps, North African. He angles the sword and slices it down towards her neck. I cry out. Mr. Les, Les. My driver can't hear. Roman doesn't understand who these figures are before him now. The policeman struggling to say his name, nor the Polish representative from the supermarket depot at Avon Magnus who speaks his name as it should be. Leszynski? Roman should recognize that. He doesn't. He has shambled at suicidal peril southward along the A5, neither seeing nor hearing the traffic on it, straight on to and across farmlands, ever toward the mounting sun, 
now stumbled blindly into Avon Magnus' distribution park amid this alien planet of a place with wide empty roads, vast roundabouts designed for vehicles like me. About him all manicured bushes and banks of billiard table grass. Roman Leszynski kneels gazing at what he sees before him, and the policeman and Polish rep cannot. The river too deep to cross, the narrow young Warwickshire Avon, the red of blood. He mutters some word he seems not to understand. Avon. Remarkable solution to perhaps the greatest mystery in our island's past. Where was the battle fought that brought Boudicca's rebellion to its terrible end? Our speaker's answer is remarkable too for the route by which he came to it. Route is indeed the word. In his earlier, more ordinary years, it was a physical journey. Also, he will tell you a satnav apparatus that awakened him to paranormal sensory powers he had not known were in him. His story will bring us to a lonely crossroads on the A5 trunk road high on a ridge along the eastern edge of Warwickshire, a place that the Romans called Venonis. And here's a mystery too. Is that name related to their Latin word for poison? and a reference to some venomous vegetation then growing here? Our speaker will have something personal to tell us of that. Also, the horrors visited by Boudicca's rebels on the Roman cities of London, St. Albans, and particularly the Roman capital, Colchester. Our speaker can personally confirm, for he witnessed them, some of the appalling images of rebel atrocity bequeathed us by the Roman historians, our earliest source. To a Roman writer, of course, our native rebels were savages. But Tacitus, for one, does acknowledge that Boudicca herself had cause. Her late husband's will overridden by Rome, herself publicly flogged and her two daughters raped by Roman military. Tacitus even gives us her rallying speech to her troops. Marvellous oratory and fiction, surely, for he can hardly have known what she really said. Or did he? Our speaker will tell how he himself heard some of her words. And rather as we might in a dream, he heard in his own head their meaning too. At the time he made his journey, our speaker knew nothing of the existence of Tacitus. His will sound a fantastical story, but police forces and detective agencies worldwide now call on his parasensory powers to aid them, particularly in their search for missing persons, living and dead. The precise site of the battle itself he does not yet claim to identify, but the location of its dreadful aftermath he can and his aerial photography will show traces of the gruesome mounds he will describe. Members of the conference, we are privileged to welcome Dr. Roman Leszczynski. Tapes have been strung around me. Police aware. 
Within my cab, the wife and children on the photographs look down. Hanging with its clutch of earth from a kitchen garden southeast of Krakow, the freezer bag sways a little in a current of air. The Nexus screen is blank and black. David Rudkin's Poison Cross was performed by Hedith Dallan, Tyrone Huggins, Richard Lynch and Maria Lewis, directed by Jack McNamara with sound and music by Adam McCready. It was produced by New Perspectives Theatre Company, funded by The Space and Arts Council England. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us with a review and subscribing to the series. To learn more about our work and watch the accompanying short films by Grant G, please visit newperspectives.co.uk.